Thank you. Thank you very much. Is my microphone on? Can you hear me? All right. Well, you thought the announcements were over, but I have something that I would like to celebrate, too. Do you want some more announcements? <laughs> That's what we come to church for. Um, uh, I just want to personally thank you. For those of you who gave to Extending Hope, um, you supported Do For One. Um, it's the organization that I lead, and we exist to build one-to-one -one lasting relationships between people with and without disabilities. And last Saturday, uh, December 9th, we had our big Christmas party. And we have a couple of pictures up on the screen. It's a little hard to see, but maybe if you look over here, yeah. Um, it was our biggest party yet. There were 120 guests. Um, but what's, what's more significant um, than the numbers for us is the level of, of, of the amount of love and the amount of commitment that each person who comes to these parties bring. Um, Everyone at every table is committed to this idea of simply loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, people with disabilities are among the most isolated and lonely people in New York City. Uh, one in five American has some kind of disability, so it's, we're not talking about a small number. Um, on average, or we, we estimate there are around 900,000 people with some kind of disability living in the city. And it's not so much their disability that's the problem, it's our mindset, it's our attitude, it's our cultural values that say wealth and power and prestige are the things to live for. But um, many of my friends with disabilities have, have uh, profoundly impacted both my wife and I's life. And, um, and that's as a result, I've felt called to step into this space of disability ministry. And Hope Astoria, um, you're all a part of that. So I, I just want to thank you very much. And in the spirit of announcements, if you're interested in getting involved in Do For One, <laughs> We have an event on January 20th, which is our orientation. We have quarterly orientations, which just kind of gives you the full scope of the work and an invitation for how you can get involved. Uh, January 20th at a church in Hell's Kitchen called One Community Church. Come and talk to me afterwards if you're interested, okay? All right. Sad to say, but the announcements are over. Aww. <laughs> but are you ready for a sermon? Yeah. I hope you've been enjoying this Advent series so far. Um, this, this, uh, this series called The Audacity to Believe, we've been taking a look at some of the characters that play key uh, critical roles in the birth of Jesus. Each of these characters had profound encounters with God, and they believed God, overcoming incredible amounts of resistance as they acted on their belief. So God gripped them with a deep sense of calling and what I love about the story of the birth of Christ is that it's crystal clear that each of these characters' profound calling was centered around baby Jesus and the belief that he is the king, the coming Messiah. For us, it should be no different. If we claim to be Jesus followers, our lives and whatever it is that we feel called to ought to be centered around Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about ourselves. It's not even about good works. It's about Jesus, the king, the Messiah. Through these accounts of the lives of these characters, we can hopefully ponder what it looks like for us today to rest on God's unfailing love as our foundation. But as we have that foundation, we can develop the courage to step out in faithfulness and to make proactive steps to participate in what God is doing today. He was alive and active, performing miracles to bring about the king, the coming king and coming Messiah in these stories. Today is no different. He's still working 
and he's working through you and me. Over the years, my work at Do For One has afforded me some interesting opportunities, um, offering me a perspective on the state of the church, kind of my finger on the pulse of different denominations, different ways that people have approached things. And years ago, I was invited to, to, to participate at a well-established church with a number of um, community activists and church leaders to talk about outreach and justice issues and things like that. I was honored to be there, and I learned a great deal about some good things happening around New York, the city. But as I was looking around, saw images of Jesus, you know, in this beautiful old church building, listening to the conversation, none of these leaders had one single reference to how the teachings of Jesus shapes our understanding of justice. And I was young, a little naive, a little bit of a zealot at the time. So I wanted to ask the provocative question, when I found a lull in the conversation, I asked, what's the difference between a community center and a church? What's the difference between a community center and a church? Community center, going out, doing good works, but the church stands apart. What is the difference? There was a long pause. There were even little patronizing chuckles to my amateur question. Mind you, I was in the room with some very bright and accomplished people, people who have written books and on and on and on. So I don't know what I was thinking getting myself into the weeds here. But the first response was this. Well, you have to come to terms with who Jesus is. And I was actually surprised. I was like, yeah, that actually sounds right. Yeah, we have to come to terms with who Jesus is. That's what separates the church from anything else. That's what makes the church distinct. Who is Jesus? But then he went on and he said, and you can have all sorts of different versions of who you believe Jesus to be, and they're all correct, just as long as you know which version you believe. This speaks to many people, I think, today who have itching ears, who want to get away from a faith that feels dogmatic and exclusive. Around Christmas time, we see advertisements all over the city saying, believe, hope, peace. Those are nice-sounding words only so far as we come to understand who or what were believing. John 1, verse 14 says, the word, meaning the truth, meaning Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So the word becoming flesh means that the object of our faith in the church is Jesus Christ, the person, the person of history, here we have Jesus giving a reason to hope. God coming down from heaven to visit us is the best reason of all to have hope. The real challenge, and this sits kind of uncomfortably for a lot of us today, is that God coming in the flesh means that it is an exclusive claim. If it's true, there's no room for creating our own versions of Jesus. It would mean he's not a set of ideas about justice or community. He's not a philosophy teacher. He's not a champion of our political party. He's God made flesh. In Matthew 2, here we have a short mention of a fascinating story about a group called the Magi. It's another unlikely group with an audacity to believe. They come far away from the east. It's important to note that they're not Jewish but they're coming far from the east to worship the king of the Jews. So let's read this story and pray and, and get into it. 
Matthew 2, starting in verse 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who had been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called all the people's chief uh, priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is where what the prophet uh, uh, was written. This is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that, had, that they had seen went, when it rose ahead of, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where Jesus was. Uh, uh, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's the story. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this story of you coming, becoming flesh to dwell among us, to bring us hope, to bring us an object of our belief, is a fascinating story that fills us with awe and wonder. And I invite your spirit to come to renew our sense of awe and wonder at what you did and what you are doing. Increase our faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me describe this story in sort of plain terms, but add some context to it so that you can hopefully start to grasp just how fascinating and like kind of strange this story is. And then I have three interrelated reflections based on this story. So, the word magi means something like those who have wisdom through the interpretation of stars. Many in the East were watchers of the stars and often tried to pull out divine and special meaning from them. The magi were like the intellectual elite of their time. They were not kings, as the We Three Kings story uh, song would suggest. Interesting, right, how we have these traditions and these images in our minds about what the, this story looks like. Until we look closer, we realize it's not quite accurate. Some of those songs can be misleading. Um, so what's more likely, they were not kings, but what's more likely is they were advisors to kings. Many believe that they came from Persia, now, now is modern-day Iraq, um, and that their roots were in Babylon. This is because we find the Magi mentioned in the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is found in the Old Testament. It's when Jewish people were exiled, and along with magicians and sorcerers, the Magi, were also unable to interpret the king's dreams, whereas Daniel, who was the Jewish believer who was exiled, could interpret the king's dreams. That's when Daniel was given a God-given ability to interpret these dreams. He had an outspoken faith in the coming Messiah, so he rose to prominence in, in the king's eyes because he was able to interpret his dreams. So it's possible that the Magi that we read about in Matthew 2 had wondered if this could be the Messiah that Daniel was talking about. 
It's important to point out that the Magi were not highly regarded in the Bible, and their beliefs and practices were largely condemned. Understanding this bit of context, you might say the story is like out of place. Matthew wrote his, his accounts with an emphasis on Jesus coming as king of the Jews. And so you might suggest to Matthew, like, hey, Matthew, like, why are you including this story about the Magi? That doesn't really fit your theme here. But I think because it doesn't fit, but yet he was being true to the historical accounts, it speaks to the authenticity of this story. The star led them east, but not all the way to Jesus. It led them to Jerusalem, where Herod was. And they started asking in Jerusalem, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So these intellectual elite walking around Jerusalem, where is the king of the Jews? Now, it's unlikely, I think I've had this picture in my mind growing up, that they somehow just like knocked on King Herod's door and said, like, hey, can we have a talk? It's unlikely that that's how they ended up meeting King Herod. And what's more likely is that Herod asked for a face-to-face meeting with them because these magi had the audacity to walk around town and say, where is the king blatantly disrespecting King Herod's throne? You should understand that Herod the Great, as he was called, was king of Judah, Judea, and was also called the king of the Jews. And Rome thought of Herod as an effective leader. Evil, violent, yes, but they also thought of him as an effective leader, a powerful leader who was getting the job done. So in effect, these magi are showing up in the king's domain saying, where is the king? blatantly disrespecting Herod. So Herod is trying to figure out what's going on. Well, who are these people? What are they talking about? So he asked the teachers of the law about it, and he learns that Bethlehem is the place where the Messiah is to be born. And then Herod summons the Magi to come and see him. King Herod's motivation for bringing them to him was ultimately to figure out where Jesus was so that he could kill him. But he was trying to trick the Magi by saying, where is this newborn baby so I can go and worship him? He's trying to trick, to find out information. So what he finds out from the Magi is when the star appeared. So now Herod knows where, whereabouts, and when, about when uh, Jesus would have been born. So he has an idea of Jesus' age at this point. And so then Herod thinks he's made allies with the Magi, and he says, go and search for the child, and once you find him, come back to me and let me know where where he is. So the Magi leave that meeting, and they continue following the star until it stops over where Jesus is, which is a house. And there they bow down and they worship him and offer him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were expensive gifts. These were the types of gifts that a king would receive. So here we have this group of people, likely more than three, because they caused quite a ruckus when they showed up in Jerusalem, Educated people of some kind of political power, not friendly to Rome, traveling from a faraway land, not Jewish, coming from kind of a strange hybrid religion of sorts, coming to worship the king of the Jews. This story tells us that Jesus has come for all. All who receive him. He's come for the Jew, but he's also come for the Gentile. He's come for the poor, but in this case, he's come for the rich. 
He's come for those who have a profile of like a religious person, you know, the kind of person that would go to a synagogue or for us, the kind of person that would go to a church. But in the case of the Magi, he's also come for the outsider. He's come for the one that, the, that all the major religions would want to reject or dismiss. And as I was looking at this story and thinking about the Magi and how, how, did, how did God like, like honor them or what was, what was it about them? And I, I thought of Hebrews 11. There's a verse where, 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 where um, Hebrews says, God rewards those who diligently seek him. Anyone who sincerely and diligently seeks him, God will honor you and he will find you. And we see that in the Magi. God shaped them into being a profound example with an audacity to believe. And there are three characteristics about being believers of God that I think we can pull from this story. Um, don't you love the three parts, three-point sermon? It's just the best. Uh, through the story of the Magi, God calls us to be the unexpected, uncompromising, undivided worshipers of God. Unexpected. The Magi would have been unexpected guests for Joseph and Mary. And what's so amazing is that although the Magi, they had a strange, hybrid, mixed religion of sorts, the kind, again, that the Bible would condemn, God reversed expectations, saw their sincere desire to meet the king, and gave, them, gave him grace for the journey. This should come as an encouragement for all of us in that I'm guessing that when you came to know Jesus, you were not exactly sound in your theology. Probably never read a Jonathan Edwards book. Probably never thought about all the many interpretations of Revelation. Yet God is gracious. God rewards those who diligently seek him. If you're someone who doesn't feel like you belong in a church, oh, there is so much hope for you because the Magi would not have belonged in a synagogue. And yet, they were some of the first people to bow down and worship Jesus. Isn't that amazing? If anything, this story should highlight for us the fact that it is often religion itself that blinds us from knowing God. The religious leaders of that time knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, just six miles away. And yet they did not bother, not even out of curiosity, to meet this newborn child that was said to be the king. Yet the Magi traveled a great distance for several months to worship Jesus. And the impression that we're left with here is that the chief priests were more fearful and loyal to King Herod. How does that apply to us today? Well, isn't it true that we, we sometimes are more loyal to our politicians and to our celebrities than to what Jesus has to say in our lives? We vacillate between the justice activist and Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, you know? <laughs> We get caught up in public and popular opinions on issues and overlook the simple gospel message that Jesus has come for everyone. The religious people we might have, come, we might have expected to come to worship Jesus don't worship him. While those who were not only unexpected, but what they, they would have had no obligation whatsoever to come to worship Jesus, they are the ones that come to worship Jesus and worship him lavishly with expensive gifts. I think this should give us pause if we think that the gospel is only for people who look like us and act like us. You know, us church people, whatever that means. The Magi were elites and wealthy and had political power. They had strange superstitious beliefs. Socioeconomically, they were like the Ivy League student with an affluent family 
or like a group of CEOs from Silicon Valley or something like that. My point is that we might like the narrative that Jesus came exclusively for the poor and that the rich and privileged are hopeless cases. But here we have a story of the Magi where the rich and elite are coming to bow down to poor baby Jesus. It flips another script. How often do we like to say, to, to say Jesus is for my team, Jesus is for my political party? But Jesus comes and flips all of those scripts around and says, no, I've come for everyone. Everyone. The ones that you would least expect. I'll never forget one of my former colleagues in my previous job. Um, she had a reputation for being a strong atheist and a secular humanist, and she did a lot of really good work. Um, so publicly, she was known as this, and she was very proud of that. That was her persona. But there was one time we were on this um, staff, this uh, staff retreat, and, and in a private conversation, she admitted to me uh, 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 something that, that struck me, and it stuck with me. She said, you know, I pride myself in being a humanist who doesn't believe in God, but deep down, I really do believe, she said. And the reason why that stands out to me and the reason why I say it now is because that's someone who is willing to earnestly seek and willing to let go of what she's known for for the sake of earnestly seeking God. See that? When we decide that we're a certain way, it's really hard to let that persona go for the sake of finding truth. But that's what the Magi did. The Magi were known as smart people, respected for wisdom and knowledge. They had appeared to have it all together from where they were from, but the type of wisdom and knowledge they had was actually quite limited for this journey. They were dependent on God, and they took great risks. What ultimately led them to Bethlehem was their earnest desire to meet Jesus and the providence of God to lead them there. To a certain extent, their acquired knowledge was useless for their journey. What ultimately led them there was the providence of God. The Magi did something wild and crazy. The people who knew them back east would have thought they were crazy for heading out to see Jesus. And then when they show up to Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem would have thought they were crazy for trying to find Jesus. That's what makes them so unexpected. Maybe you're a Jesus follower, but you say to yourself, I'm not like one of those crazy Jesus followers. <laughs> or maybe you're not a Christian today, or maybe you're not sure what you believe, and you say, well, my philosophy in life is, you know, be a good person, be positive, good things will come your way. Or, or, or you say, well, my PhD was in such and such, and so therefore, well, this is what I believe. But if we have a sudden urge or curiosity about the hunger of God, then we must be willing to unexpectedly let go of all those things for the sake of finding truth. We need to be learn, uh, willing to, we need to learn to, to, to be willing to throw off ideas or identities of ourselves that we hold dear if they turn out to be false identities. All for the sake of finding God, the most treasured possession of all. In that way, you and I can become unexpected worshipers of God. God calls us to be unexpected, do unexpected things at times for the sake of following him. And I think this should be encouraging for those of us who feel like outsiders. And I think it should come as a warning for those of us who are the insiders. We should be aware of how our religious habits can blind us from the raw and sometimes even awkward pursuit of God. 
So God calls us to be uncompromising worshipers of God. After the Magi saw Jesus, they were warned in a dream not to return the same way home. Remember, Herod wanted them to, to come back to them with a report, but they avoided this, having been warned in a dream, and they snuck away and they went home. The Magi had the audacity to believe and the audacity to go against King Herod's orders And I think this shows that they did not compromise on their beliefs that Jesus is the king and not Herod. If the Magi had gone back to King Herod after worshiping King Jesus, then they would have been serving Herod's purposes and not God's. Their worship would have been compromised. So just a quick reflection there, because this point is related to to the other point. But the question we can ask ourselves now is, what person or thing might have more authority over our life than God. What are the King Herods, so to speak, of our lives that we must avoid? We can say we worship Jesus. We can say that we're Christians. We can show up to church. We can stand up for justice issues. We can join a small group. We can do all sorts of Christian-looking things and still have other things that drive our decisions on a day-to-day basis, like money, status, others' approval, and so on. God calls us to be uncompromising and to serve him only. I felt pretty alone in the first service when I asked this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And I'm going to get a little closer to you just to, just to tell you how firmly I believe it. No. Um, are there any Bob Dylan fans here? Any Bob Dylan fans? There's like three people, yeah. It's better than the first service. He's a great lyricist. I know, I know his voice is a little brash. If you haven't heard him, just I'm sure you're curious at this point. He had an awesome gospel album called The Slow Train Coming, 1979. A song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. First verse goes like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. doesn't matter who you are. So God calls us to be unexpected, uncompromising, and finally, undivided worshipers of God. What does that mean? Undivided. The gifts the Magi offered were that of a king. They were undivided in the sense that their loyalty was solely on Jesus, not even Mary or Joseph. As important as those roles were, the Magi came to see Jesus, their child. They fell down and they worshipped him. The actual word worship comes from an old English word called worth-ship, worth-ship, which means giving someone or something worth by the, way of, by the way we live our life, by the way we express ourselves. The Magi gave Jesus their best, something they believed Jesus to be worth. One of the tasks of a worship leader is to help people become aware of God's presence when we're all together through musical worship. And then we invite the people who are in the space to acknowledge God for all he is worthy of. And that's what we see the Magi do in this story. They had one single mission. 
their whole journey for several months, risking their lives, risking their reputation, was just to worship Jesus. That's it. Just to show up, worship him, give him gifts, and then go home. Isn't that amazing? It's so counterproductive, right? In our day and age, we would think, why would you spend, I mean, what does that even do? What would anybody have to gain from that? What would anybody have to gain from that? On the surface, it doesn't seem like they would gain anything, but in doing what they did, they gained everything. What do I mean by that? True worship of God is when we experience truth and freedom in its greatest expression. Here's why. If you don't worship God, you'll worship something else. And when you worship something else, it'll create an insatiable hunger and you will wind up becoming something other than what you were made to be. If you live to worship money, you'll never have enough and you'll always be comparing yourself with people who have more. If you live to worship power, you'll always feel weak and afraid. If you live to worship beauty, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship being intelligent, you'll always feel a fool. It's important to point out, though, that the problem is not in our desire to be satisfied. It's not in our hunger. It's not in our desire to find fulfillment. The problem is in what we think will give us that fulfillment. Are you with me? And when we make too big of a deal of these things, they start to drive our life. They start to control us we begin to serve them and not God. The trickiest part of this is that for many of us, the things that we tend to look for satisfaction in are good things, like our families, like our children, like our careers, our friends, our hobbies. Those are good things. And so some of us might not even realize to what degree we've placed those good things above God in our day-to-day life. The problem isn't in these, in these good things. I want to be clear about that. The problem is that it puts an unhealthy strain on these good things because then we expect these people and these things to do what only God can do. If a husband worships his wife and he expects that she can fulfill the deepest longings of his soul, he'll be putting an unfair expectation on her and pressure on her to be something that she was never made to be because only God can satisfy that husband in the way that he needs. The very people and things we love can end up crushing us, or we can crush them when we try to get something from them that only God can give. Something that we commonly worship in the Western culture, in New York City especially, is success. We have an addiction to success. In the 1980s, there was a physician by the name of Robert Goldman who famously found in his research that half of talented athletes would be willing to trade five years of their life if they could have an Olympic gold medal. So they would die five years younger if it meant that they could have an Olympic gold medal. That just speaks to the volumes of our drive towards success, whatever industry that may be, whatever that may be for you. When I graduated high school, a lot of my peers got ahead of me. So a a theme in my young adult life was 
People are always kind of ahead and doing the thing that I want to do before me, you know. They went away to four-year colleges before me. They got married before me. They have children and on and on and on. And so I always felt there's kind of like this deep imprint in my soul of like feeling left behind. And um, uh, I don't know if you can relate, but, but there is this gnawing question that still follows me to this day, and I have to be aware of it and seek God's grace in it. And the gnawing question that follows me is this. Am I successful yet? Am I successful yet? Have I finally arrived? Have I finally accomplished something where I can say, yeah, I'm, I'm successful? I mean something now. And what I realize now, and maybe I can save you some trouble, is that there's no level of worldly success that will ever make me finally say yes to that question. I'll always be chasing for more and more. I'll never be successful if that's my God, if that's what I worship. Maybe it's not success for you, but maybe it's something else. What is it for you? One way to identify that and I invite you to reflect is, ask yourself, what thing or person, if you lost it, could cause, you to, could, could cause your life to lose all meaning? What thing, if you lost it, could cause your life to lose all meaning? Whatever that is, it's more than likely that this is the thing that's dividing your heart, that's, that's, that's causing you to compromise between worshiping and serving God alone, and it's, and it's something that if you're not careful, can enslave you and can strip you of all sorts of joy. So as we close, the musicians can come. I just want to end there. I want to reflect on that question. If we can just reflect to ourselves, what is that thing, that person, that group? Is it success? Is it wealth? Is it power? If you lost it, it would cause you to just not have any more meaning in your life. More than likely, that's something that you're serving. More than likely, that's the King Herod of your life, so to speak. So God, we offer that thing to you, and as an act of worship, we lay it down out of recognition that it's never gonna fulfill our, the, the longings of our soul. Can we be unexpected in our worship? Can we surprise the people that have always known us to be X, Y, and Z and say, no, I'm not that way anymore, I follow Jesus? The series calls us to an audacious belief, calls us out of our comfort zone, calls us out of our greed, out of our desire and obsession over success or whatever it may be so that we can follow him and so that we can become Jesus followers and do some good in this world. But it begins and it ends with worship. It begins and it ends with worship and that's something that applies to all of us. If you don't worship God, you worship something else. So I want to offer an opportunity for us to, rec to begin to recognize what those things are so that we can, like the Magi, we can go home another way. When our souls hunger, you know that feeling when your soul is hungering for something? You start to look to those things again to fulfill you. Let us realize today that it's not in our education, it's not in our intelligence, it's not in our politicians or celebrities or favorite authors, 
It's not in rulers. It's not in innovative technology. It's not in our successes. It's not even in our families, our kids, that's going to satisfy the deep longing in our soul. The one we hunger and thirst after is God, God alone. If you're able, can we stand to our feet? If you want to do an unexpected thing, can we lift our hands? Can we hold our hands out like this? Whatever it is that maybe God has pointed out to you, let our hands like open like this be an expression of offering that to God. We offer these things to you, Lord God. As an act of worship, we say these things aren't satisfying us and we're here to worship you. Give us the grace for our journey. Lead us and guide us. Thank you that you reward those who diligently seek you. In Jesus' name we pray.